0: back on the Ubuntu People's Podcast. Yeah, I think I'm going to change it from Ubuntu Radio, because we're doing podcasting now. Radio is dead. So this is the Ubuntu People, Ubuntu People, folks that are looking for meaning and love and understanding with one another. So you're back again today to hear that meaning, to be comforted by it, and to be inspired to move forward and extend those tendrils of love and appreciation and humanity out as far as you can take them. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking to Dr. Bertram Ash, professor of literature and American culture at at Richmond University, Um, wrote a book called Twisted, My Dreadlock Chronicles. We discuss that book, we discuss dreadlocks, Rastafarianism, growing out your hair, how he came to that decision, actually started in 1977, he didn't dread his hair in the late 70s but he got interested in the idea and it took him 20 years to do it. So we talk about his journey, we talk about my dreadlock journey, we talk about the white gaze, we talk about perceptions of the hair in America, all around the world, and then why we did it, why we dreaded our hair, what we want folks to see what we want to project and sort of the reactions that we receive from it. We talk about Bob Marley, James Baldwin, Jazz, consciousness, wokeness. We talk about an interesting thing I didn't really think, never thought about. That Whoopi Goldberg ushered in dreads, in a sense, in the mid-80s. Because she was one of the few ones out there I never really thought about that. We talk about looking forward to having gray dreads like Tony Morrison looking wise and sage-like. And then we talk about his area of study. The post-black. Or what he calls the post-soul aesthetic, and how that ties into many of the issues that are going on in America today. I've always been interested in blackness and postmodernism, and blackness as a field of cultural study, but here's the thing. This conversation is open to anybody. You don't have to be black, you don't have to be minority to really understand and partake in this. You don't have to be black to listen and get something from this. Already, folks, I've been getting something from the dominant culture for, I don't know, ever. And so I think it's sometimes it's okay to listen in if your skin ain't black or if your skin ain't brown. It's okay. Learning is okay. So I welcome you to continue doing that. The internet is open and free as a distribution channel for a lot of sucky, awful ideas, a lot of strife and hate. But the Ubuntu People's Podcast I hope, is some sort of light out there to try to bring about that unity, that understanding. Continue to listen to us. Send the links to your friends. Certainly subscribe, like, and comment on Podomatic and on iTunes on the Apple Podcasts. I'm going to try to get this thing to more podcast distribution vehicles all over the interwebs. So spread our word, the Ubuntu People's Podcast. Try to bring you ideas that you might be interested in from normal people just like you. Only difference is, I got them to talk a little bit. And if you want to be one of those guests on my show, again, I want to talk to regular folks. Regular folks make up this world. Regular folks got things to say. and Regular folks change things. So reach out to me, email, my phone number is all over the web. If you're interested, you'll figure it out and get up. Again, subscribe, like, comment, all over the interwebs, all over social media, so we can keep this thing going. If you want to get a handle on where America is and where it's going, that post solar, that post black idea, I think is going to play a major part of what's going to happen in the next 30 years or so. So sit back, enjoy, and thank you for listening.
1: at the University of Richmond. I first encountered Dr. Ash. It might have been about a year ago in Durham, North Carolina. You were doing a reading at the Bayou Cafe for your then new book, Twisted. My Dreadlock Chronicles, I think it was moderated by Natalie Bullock and uh, Professor Mark Anthony Neal. And you it's spent great. probably about 45 minutes or so um, talking about the book. And one of the things that struck me is that your last name, my last name is Ash. So I'm looking at Dr. Ash, a dreadheaded, scholarly-looking man, and I'm going, is this sort of an alternate reality of, this is what I was supposed to, this is what I should have been doing? Because you're there presenting scholarly work, showcasing, obviously, the intellect and some scholarship about a topic that rang you for me because, I mean, I've, I've grown my dreads three times in my life since my sophomore year in high school, so it was refreshing hearing you talk about sort of your dreadlock journey because it didn't start for you as early as I think it was for me. Mine was, again, sophomore year, 15 years old, high school, summer of 1991. When did your dreadlock journey begin to give people a little sense of the book?
2: Well, my dreadlock journey actually began at San Jose State University when I was, I want to say 18 or so, back in uh, 1977. That's when I became aware of the style. It was mind-blowing from my perspective, even though it wasn't another 20 years, 20 plus years, before I actually began the process of locking my hair. I have to say the journey probably began there, and... Uh, in in the book, I take a chapter that kind of trace that journey from its seed life beginning, even though the plant, if you will, didn't begin to grow until 1998. I was fascinated with dreadlocks that whole time, was flirting with it. And because of my use and because of my, you know, lack of comfort with swimming against the grain, in terms of style and in terms of self-presentation, it took me a minute to get to the point where I could actually make that move. But in, in a certain way, that journey would take place the whole time. Live if you want to
1: live. Trust the Vibration. Yeah. So home was the West Coast, San Jose, oh, cool. liberal America, I'm assuming, at that at that time. Um, I'm thinking San Jose, is it northern, closer to northern California, Oakland area, or oh, are yeah. you central? You're right after Black Panthers, right after Black and Proud, hairstyle, Afros. I'm thinking that's what's popping. If that was the norm, what made dreadlock hairstyle itself appealing to you? Was it... A cultural thing, because my assumption is at that point, there's not a big population of people doing it out there. Or if no. I'm wrong,
2: just you know, let me know. No, you are absolutely correct. And you know what's funny? I did, I did indeed uh, matriculate in 1977, and I didn't know anybody who wore dreadlocks. I'm not sure I saw anyone who wore dreadlocks other than Bob Marley was big at the time. Last Vibration that came out in 1976, so about. it was just sort of a conventional, you know, disco era, late 1970s, go to the party and dance to some P funk some bricks and some jazz. And it simply was not the same kind of alternative environment of the sort that Berkeley still was. And was the hairstyle, in your
1: mind at that point, Seventy seven seventy eight, associated with political activity? Or was it just sort of an alternative lifestyle? These folks might be smoking a little funny cigarette every now and again. Were those things tied for you then? And if so, was that a fear? Because what you're telling me is that it took twenty years until you're like, you know what, I'm gonna start this thing. That's a
2: really good question. Eye on eye. Vibration. simply can't say that I made that connection back then. The term woke that kids use that day, when I was younger, the term was conscious, right? And it's the same conception, same which is that you're either, you know, unconscious or asleep, and as you become more politically aware, you become conscious or, you know, awake or woke. Dreadlocks may well have been associated with being conscious in that sort of way. Absolutely. The, the, the fact that dreadlocks in the 1970s, up until, I'd say all the way through the 1980s, at least into the mid-1980s, was aligned with Rastafarianism, reggae music, and a kind of ganja-infested sort of way of, of looking at the world. The fact that Marley was as political as he was undoubtedly would have people thinking if they had heard of Bob Marley. You know, it's a, it's a sad fact that, that Bob Marley was, was I and mean, huge in certain pockets of American culture back when he was alive, and in other pockets of American culture he was. Let's call it that for what community. it
1: is. He was more popular. When I went to college, there were more... For, I'm sorry to say this. There were white kids that had Bob
2: Marley album, albums than black kids. Let's call it for what it is. Yeah. Let's call it for what it is. Yeah. That's exactly right. I, I was about to say that absolutely includes black folks yeah. who may or may not have heard of, of Bob Marley. But dreadlocks themselves back then were so rare. and was such a head turning curiosity that if you wore them, people would assume that you were either a rock star or a, a reggae musician or you were connected. And those were the primary associations that took place until somebody like, say, a Whoopi Goldberg came along and initiated a kind of toppling of those sorts of events.
1: Yeah, I never think about Whoopi as being a sort of departure from that association with Jamaica and weed and bongo drums and all that stuff. I never thought about that, but she was. In terms of the mid-'80s, I'm trying to think back. Besides her doing her one-woman show on Broadway, doing her monologue. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anybody who was in popular culture Mm -hmm. post-Marley. So Marley dies early 80s. I can't think of anybody. So if there was nobody out there, do you think that was the delay on your side? And then what was the impetus for you going in 1998? You know what? I'm in a place (laughs) personally where almost for lack of a better F this. I'm going to do it. I've always wanted to do this. I'm comfortable with me. Or had it saturated the culture enough in, let's say, the early '90s with with, with hip hop, and the hip hop dreads were not visually the same as probably what you encountered in the late '70s and what people think when they when they picture Marley. The hip hop dreads were a little more, almost like salon made dread. So what was it when you finally came around to it? It had to be some level of acceptance in the culture where you feel comfortable, but also some sort of inner
2: acceptability or strength in you that said, you know what? I'm ready to do this. Right. It was a little bit of both. My conception is that as far as dreadlocks coming from Jamaica to the United States, the, what was pivotal was this uh, 1979 60-minute broadcast that was on the Rossafariah. And you got to remember this, this is before cable went broad in the way that it did. This is long before the Internet. So the sheer volume of people that watched 60 Minutes every Sunday evening was millions and millions and millions of people. And as a result, when that program on dreadlocks, well, it wasn't on dreadlocks. It was actually on the Rock Sparlands, but the Rock Sparlands were wearing dreadlocks. That was a kind of introduction in a certain way to America that the dreadlock hairstyle existed. And so I marked that as the beginning of what I call the golden age of, of dreadlock, because that was the era when dreadlocks were When it was something that would cause people concern and curiosity, and those that were attracted to it, gravitated toward it, and those that were opposed by it, sprinted in the opposite direction. And that lasted until the early 90s. That long 80s was an era that I was very much paying attention to and captivated by the dreadlock aircraft. I wanted to do it when I was in Louisiana uh, at the fish for a year and a half in, I want to say 1983 or thereabouts, and did it. I became interested in it in the early 19, uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s when a couple of buddies of mine that I was going to grad school with at the Virginia Commonwealth University had their hair mocked, uh, and I still didn't do it. Part of what was going on was I went to teach at Holy Cross and I was 38, 39 years old. I was feeling like I wanted to make a statement of some sort, but I didn't just want to make a statement to the world, I wanted to make a to myself, that I was at a stage of my life where I could indeed say, F this, I'm doing what I want. I also knew that I was on the tenure track. You teach and you publish for six years, and you go up to tenure, and if you get tenure, it's essentially a job for life, very difficult to get fired, but it's a rigorous six years because... If you jump a life. And I knew that I would never forgive myself if I locked my hair after I had the safety of tenure, because that would go against this idea that it was an edgy, you know, provocative gesture. And it wouldn't have meant nearly as much for me personally if I waited until after tenure. So I made sure that I locked my hair to three years before I got tenure. If they were going to grant me tenure, they wouldn't grant me tenure with dreadlocks. And if they had some issue with it, if they were shallow enough to not grant me tenure because I had dead luck, then that was gonna be the cost of wearing the hair started So basically I was those, all of those different factors were kind of swirling around as I decided on March eighth, nineteen ninety eight. You know what? I'm going to
0: Dread, not dread now. dread. like Congo, dread. Not the dread a dread. like Congo, high. Not get your culture.
1: I am on the phone right now with. uh, Dr. Bertram Ash, a uh, professor of, uh, he said, late 20th century and early 21st century literature and culture, currently at the University of Richmond in Virginia. But you mentioned undergrad was in on the West Coast in San Jose. You mentioned yeah. just now teaching
2: at, at, at Holy Cross. Is it Virginia Commonwealth as well? Well, yeah, I taught at Holy Cross. I went to, I got a master's at, uh, at Virginia Commonwealth. My PhD was at the, the College of the Women in, there, in American City. As you're obviously going up for tenure,
1: trying to be careful to establish yourself, because again, once you get it, it's tough to lose that job. Were there other folks close to you, particularly black professors, because there's probably not a lot of them, where, wherever we are in the academy, and so are they looking at you growing your dredge, or deciding to grow your dredge, trying to talk you out of it, because they don't want it to be a mitigating factor one bit in the process? Is style... A bigger, I mean, uh, and my assumption is nobody would admit it because your your professors were there to study and to teach and, you know, the way we look, it doesn't really matter. But is that a bigger part of the academy in general and particularly for black pros? Because my assumption is there's not a lot. So the eyes are on you when you're up there. So you not must, but it behooves you to present yourself a certain way.
2: The reality for me, and I'm sure gender has something to do with it, uh, and the fact that I didn't join the academy until I was in my, my, you know, mid to late 30s, I've never really felt trapped in or constrained by the white gay
0: And that's a long way, to me don't care what the world
2: I will admit that it's there, and I will admit that I'm aware of this thing. But as far as I'm concerned, I I simply don't feel the heat. I don't feel the heat of the spotlight. And as a result, when I go into the classroom, when I'm walking around on campus, I walk around like I own the place. I know professors who feel like they're under a microscope. That for them, that spotlight is hot. They feel they heat. And I'm sorry that they feel that way. And, and I'm not the only one who doesn't, but I know that there are those that do. I haven't felt like my dreadlocks or my, my personal style is anything more than my own personal sense of expression, even as I understand that that sense of expression comes with people reacting to it. These folks who walk around and say, you know, I don't pay any attention to style. style. You know, I, that's nonsense. And, and anyone who pays attention to the style is just facile and don't understand what really matters. Right. Who you are. Yeah, those people don't. That, that's silly. You know, we are, we are a visual culture. And when you walk into a room, does matter in ways that, that a lot of people are uncomfortable acknowledging, but nevertheless, it's real. Whether they understand it or not, uh, it, it, it's just a fact.
1: There's a certain comfort in not being affected by the white gaze, a certain comfortability mm-hmm. in yourself. Does that lead to then saying, you know what, it, it may not have been dreads. Give me purple hair. I don't care. I know who I am. Or do you think the dreads engenders in people who wear it this, not backlash, but you're getting a certain, for lack of a better word, stereotype in, in what the other sees in you? So they see the Rastafari, they see yes. Jamaica. And I can, I can say that for a fact. How many yes. times people who do not know me just go, So you're Jamaican? Uh, no, I'm not from Jamaica, I'm from this other island. But again, I cannot I yeah. blame them. The association is Dreadlocks and Jamaica. Thank you, Bob Marley. No, no problem. I can do that. But right. what you were saying is, I remember my dreadlock story is, is summer of 1991, I go away to this, this camp, I have this watershed moment, this life-altering experience, and I come back to Brooklyn, New York, ready to start my mm-hmm. sophomore year of high school at Brooklyn Tech. So school starts in September. In August, yeah. I go, you know what? I am no longer that person that I was before this summer. I am proactively going to do something to change the way I interact with people. I was a shy person in public. I knew I wasn't that way and I just wanted to express myself. So I said, all right, what is one way that I can visually demarcate the person who I was to the person I want to be? So I said, mom, start dreading my hair because people are going to look, you're not going to see the person who was there in June. It is somebody completely different. So you have to start treating me different because something in your mind going, that's not him. And if I then start acting a different way, it's melding the two. And the other thing was, I would look in the mirror every day and I would see the dreads growing. And it would be a visual reminder to me that I was growing, that I wanted the change. And the longer the dreads got, the longer the distance would have been from the person who I was, And I was sort of carrying myself with my hair to the person I wanted to be. But what's funny is the spring of my junior year in high school, the hair almost became a burden because that was the definition. You know what I mean? For anybody who didn't really know me, oh, you're the dread guy. You're the guy with the dreads. And so I said, F this. I'm cutting this all off almost (laughs) as a test to me. Almost as a test to me. Am I just the guy with the dreads? And I think you mentioned this. It's sort of a two-edged sort or two sides of this. The other thing was being an athlete. Being an athlete gives me sort of this nonverbal connection with people who are athletically inclined anywhere I go. Same thing with dread. It was an instant conversation starter. I didn't have to say anything. Anybody who wanted to come over, oh, how do you do it, blah, blah, blah. And almost instantly, I am in some sort of a dialogue with a person. Wherever the conversation goes, it goes, but it started with the hair. And I wanted to see almost like... Can I do this without this thing on my head? Had it become me or was there just, and it was just an appendage. It was just a thing, like a rug, almost like a toupee. But there was a personality <laughs> under me. Did that, did that struggle ever come up for you? And how did you deal with that? Specifically as it re- regards the, you mentioned the white gaze. And maybe the question, can I touch it?
2: I love this book, uh, and it makes perfect sense. It took me years to get used to seeing myself in the mirror with dreadlocks. It took me years to stop kind of being surprised a little bit when somebody would react to my hair, because in my mind I wasn't envisioning myself with it, you know. And that might be the difference between spreading your hair for the first time as an adolescent, as a, as a as a high school student, versus doing it when you're close to 40. I'm a grown man. I've been a grown man for 20 years. And then I fundamentally altered my appearance in ways that took me a minute to catch up, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of, of you're always looking out. Unless you're walking by a reflective window, or you happen to see a, a, a mirror, or, or you know you use the restroom in a, in a restaurant, and say okay, you pop up and there you are. Other than that, you don't see yourself, and all you really have is this conception of what you must look like in your head. It's precisely why you see these horrific comb overs and these these pages that these most most white guys have. It's because what they want is try and match some semblance of how they see themselves inside with how they're projecting themselves to work. It's a, a fool. <laughs> and what they really should do is do the work to make a connection and however long it takes, begin to see yourself as the bold guy you are instead of trying to, to play this game. But for me, I enjoy and I continue to enjoy the tension between my projected persona, and the Burt that I am, and the me that I know I would look like if I cut my hair. But I continue to have so much fun with, in a sense, playing with the public by presenting a persona, since I do have dreadlocks and what that means. There is, you know, apparently a kind of guy who wears dreadlocks. I'm that guy. But I'm kind of not that guy at the same time. I know that I'm not that guy. But people walking around who see me for no other reason than the fact that I do wear dreadlocks, they inevitably think I'm the kind of guy who wears dreadlocks. And I'm both the kind of guy who wears dreadlocks and the kind of guy who's wearing dreadlocks who absolutely has no business wearing dreadlocks. And so I, 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 I'm continually uh, amused and enjoy that dichotomy in a way that would cause me to be reluctant to cut them off because then the fun goes away. much the same way that dreadlocks pro- project a certain persona that Americans think they know. and In fact, Americans, in Cuba, in London, in Berlin, in Panama, people have walked up to me or at least said things that conform to this very familiar stereotype in many other countries than just the United States of America. So it's kind of a worldwide phenomenon where people think they know. And it, it is indeed. It. Just as you said, it's fun to confront with expectations, um, but as long as 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 long as that's on my turn. Yeah,
1: man, I remember, I mean, so I, I cut my dreads spring of my junior in high school and I started growing them again. Grew them all through college. And I'm a 42-year-old guy with, With a dredge down to my shoulders, I'm never going to let them go past my shoulders because I don't see the point of it. I don't see the point of (laughs) them. My dad has hair past his butt. And he's told me, don't you ever cut him again. He's looked at me in my face and said, don't ever touch your hair again. So he's about a 66, 67-year-old man. You know, I'm going to respect his wishes and, and try to leave them alone. But I am who I am. And I hear you saying this. I am who I am. And for the beginning of this dread journey, it was me trying to affirm this self that I thought I was to the world so then they can reflectively just give me the opportunity to be that person. And like you, Mm -hmm. it's it's 20 plus years later, and I can honestly say, this is me. So, are you you in that place?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been for, for a minute now. Like I said, it's been 20 years, uh, and it may have taken me, uh oh man, somewhere between five and 10 years to truly become comfortable with them, but I bet that's been the way it's been for some time now. I get asked all the time by people I, who know me, do you have any thoughts of, when I'll cut them. And what I say is, I will never say never. I don't have any plans to cut anytime soon. Not only that, I have always liked, for years now, long before I had that look, I like uh, the metallic gray hair of, say, a Tony Morrison.
1: Oh, my um, God. I couldn't wait you know? to start going gray.
2: I couldn't yeah, wait. <laughs> it, it is just it, it's a fantastic look. And I continue to, to you know, to go gray. And I can't think of anything that I would like better than to have a full head of. Gray I, I hope that I get that at some. Point. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm going great fast now. I just turned 59, to nine, and we'll see. <laughs>
1: Again, uh, you're on Ubuntu Radio. I'm talking to uh, Dr. Bertrand Ash. We've just spent some time talking about his book. My way of talking about our own dreadlock journey, we're talking about his book, Twisted, my uh, dreadlock chronicles. Where can folks find the book?
2: Uh, probably the best place would be online. It was in the bookstores when it was new. Do you have a website where they can go to? I do not have an active website. i okay. working on
1: that. So, again, it's Twisted, my Dreadlock Chronicles, uh, Dr. Bertrand, A-S-H-E, look it up, fascinating work. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about, obviously, the book itself, but one of the things I am looking forward to, I hope you've got some time, and I don't want to monopolize too much of it, is your work, your scholarship. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you're a professor of literature at the University of Richmond now. I'm reading a little blurb, probably from the university website. So the triumvirate of focus, black hair, basketball, and jazz. So in, in NBA playoffs, in NBA playoffs, I wanted to get into that a little bit. But what I really want to get into is I think your area's focus is post-blackness. And we've heard the term post-racial since the election of Barack Obama and what that should have engendered. And we know what it didn't, And but more so this idea of a post-soul aesthetic. I really want to get into that. But, but to, to, to lighten it up a little bit, you, are you, you're a basketball fan. Oh, yes. Did you watch Russ go off last night on the Jazz? I
2: did. I thought they were cooked because they were down by, by a lot.
1: 25 points at the back. end of the third quarter.
2: 25. Yeah, they came storming back. I
1: was, I was impressed. I thought they were finished. Are you impressed with, I mean, a lot of folks who were might be NBA purists who always harken back to the, the rough and tough 90s, Jordan's era as the epitome of what basketball was, and these kids today are too soft. I'm, I'm starting to lean on the other side of that. These kids are freaking skilled. bull Outlaw Bo- and the Davis brothers had no business being in the NBA because they couldn't do anything related to basketball. They were there to be thugs. They were there to be physical muscle. To push people and scare people out of coming through the paint. So do you look at basketball now and say, all right, the Jordan era was the greatest, or can you appreciate the skill, the serious level of skill that somebody like a a Curry has or a Harden has or really Joel Embiid has?
2: Not only can I appreciate it, I find it. I'm the only sports fan in my house. I constantly have people floating through, you know, the gym who couldn't care less about basketball. But nevertheless, every now and then I just stop my wife and I say, You see that guy like right this? Guy's named Kevin Durant. He's actually seven feet tall. Look at how he is. <laughs> <laughs> Look at what he can do. He's dribbling the ball through his legs. You know, I'm old enough to remember what seven footers used to be able to not do. And if you look at the unibrow, with that two fan for the Pelicans,
1: yeah, Anthony Davis.
2: Oh, um, sick You know, I mean, look, I, I am, I appreciated basketball back in the nineties. I enjoyed the Jordan era, just like everybody else. But the game of basketball as played by today's pro players is way more pleasurable to watch. Way more interesting to watch the freaks of nature who are as fluid and as agile as. Ordinary people, and then some. No, it's great. I, I'm, I'm. You know what drives me crazy? There's one thing that drives me nuts. And again, I, I, you know, I went to, I was in high school. I played high school ball between 1974 and 1976 And um we watched the games last night. Did you watch? Who's the, the guy who go uh, Played for Utah, I think.
1: Yeah, the center for Utah.
2: That guy got the ball in the middle of the key, right next to the basket. All he had to do was dunk. That's all he had to do. And instead of dunking the ball, this knucklehead threw the ball to the corner where that looking phenom, I can't remember his name, was waiting to take a three-point shot. And he took a three-point shot and he missed. And the thing that drives me nuts is this idea that if you're slashing the lane and headed towards the basket, that's somehow it's preferable to kick beyond the three-point line <laughs> and have some guy jack up, which, and look, if he makes four out of ten, he's great, okay? So not shooting the short three in anticipation of hopefully making a shaky three is complete and utter nonsense to me, and I, can't, I just can't get with this new rationale that says, you know, we want to shoot as many threes as possible, so we'll give up an almost certain extremely high percentage two points in order to hopefully get an extra point that's not likely to go in because most people miss six times out of ten. That's complete and utter nonsense. And I cannot get used to that. And I've screamed at the TV plenty of times because it happens all the time, you know, seven, eight, ten times a game. But other than that, it's a wonderful game to watch.
1: I'm going to try to make it a very broad segue from there to the post-Soul aesthetic, post-Blackness, post-racial America. What I see there in describing the NBA lane, and I grew up in New York City, Pat Riley, Knicks, nobody comes through, no fly zone. Nobody comes to the lane or else you're going to feel an elbow from Anthony Mason, or Charles Smith or Patrick Ewing, and you're gonna go back and you're taking you gonna be happy, Jordan Pippen, all of you. So the NBA of the, the so called golden age was tougher, more confrontational in your face, particularly where it mattered around the basket. Right. right. To segue a little bit in terms of expanding it to to making America our NBA court and to make okay. the different populations in this country the teams. And everybody's trying to get to the basket. Everybody's trying to get to the dream, the picket fence and all that stuff. We're all trying to get there. But along the way, we meet each other in the paint. And there was a point in your lifetime where that confrontation was incredibly real, incredibly dangerous, and it could have been deadly. And then there was a period where almost we kind of almost forgot about it, but we can't now. Because we're in this post-racial, post blackness, post Obama return to something that we thought was no longer there. So again, just like on the basketball court, there was an era when confrontation was unavoidable. Like you said, mm-hmm. big man, they clash Russell Chamberlain, it was body against body, and they didn't they were not taught the fundamentals of anything else this is just what big men did but we're at an era now where the folks who in another era would have confronted each other literally the big men in the game quote unquote the game are now throw the ball to the side and we find ways of trying to you know what I'm saying to try to work around to get to this idea that for the entire history of the quote unquote game It was confrontational. There was only one way of doing it. But now Mm. we're in this other era where the big men have softened. They're more skillful. They're more knowledgeable. So they have other (laughs) things they can do to win, quote unquote, the game that has always been played in this country. So I'm hoping the people who are listening understand where I'm trying to get with that. I know that was a big stretch. That was a big but, but you understand I, what I'm saying. So we're, we're in this era of non-confrontational confrontation where we're skillful but, and knowledgeable enough to figure out workarounds. But the point is, go bear, take the effing ball up. You're big, you're strong. <laughs> go up, meet him at his highest point, and then you will know for sure if you can. Yeah. Because the next time you get the ball, all right, I can kick it to Donovan Mitchell. I can kick it to Ricky Rubio. But, Gobert, do you ever know if you can yam it on on, on um, the Australian boy for the... For, uh, Stephen Adams? Oh, Stephen do Adams? you ever know yes. unless you freaking try it? It's like, we're going to go to March and we're going to tell them, We're going to show them, We're going to do it. We're not going to work around it. We're not going to find some other way of doing it. So... This idea, this place that we're at in America right now, is it our big men taking the ball, taking the ideas and throwing them and hoping, you know, percentage wise, if we do it long enough, you know, we'll get something in or do we need that confrontational mentality now?
2: First off, one, what a spectacular segue. <laughs> well, you did. That was, that was great. I really enjoyed it. Secondly, we, we need to talk terms. I'm going to answer your question. You know, uh-huh. the question oh, absolutely. The question, let's let's the question, get this out. The, question. Um, the, the problem with the, the prefix post is that we all learn, probably as early as grade school, that post means asset postgame game show. That means Bunch of former players and, you know, Ernie, are going to get together and talk about what happened with the game. They don't do that during the game because the game is still happening. Pre-game, they talk about what's going to happen. Post-game, they talk about what happened because post-game's act. But there probably isn't a term more misunderstood in contemporary American culture Then the term post-racial, which was never meant when the term was coined to mean after race. I completely understand why people think that that's what it means because post means after to most people. What it meant to the person who, who coined it, I don't have the gentleman's name off the top of my head, is not post as in after, but post as in different, right? And in terms of post-blackness, same deal. I can't tell you the number of people who upon hearing, and these are all folks who are outside of the academy, upon hearing the term post-blackness, scrunch up their face and say, I'm still here. How can blackness be post? I'm right here. I'm like, that's not what we mean by post-blackness. Nobody conceived of folks blackness as being separate from and after and pushing back at blackness. Blackness is not a monolith. We all know that. It's it's so funny how Reginald McNight a novelist once shared with me how I was interviewing him and he said uh, black folk, whenever they're talking to white people, I think it's like don't, don't, don't try and make it seem like we're all the same and, you know, all we do is play basketball and dance and, and you know, do all these things that, that you think we do. And then the a black person will turn around and look at somebody who is also black that doesn't do these things and go, hey, You're, not black, you you're <laughs> not black how enough. You're not black enough. like you're not playing basketball? Man? Right. You can't play cards with no good wins for you. What's that? And it was funny. But there's also some truth to it, in that we both want to be uh, respected for the individuals that we are, and the non-monolithic nature that blackness is, and yet at the same time, there is what I refer to as traditional blackness, and that doesn't mean that it's based on genetics, it doesn't mean that it's based on anything other than there are certain aspects that are traditions that people feel comfortable doing. Unfortunately, people look at those who are non-traditional and question their blackness because they shouldn't. But at the same time, if in fact you have so many people in the post civil movement era, many of whom grew up in the suburbs, many of whom grew up, grew up in, in the city, but with interests and ways of looking at the world, that made them non-traditional, even if they grew up in Brooklyn or grew up in, you know, West Philadelphia or wherever, then if enough people are that way and enough post-civil rights movement as in born or came of age after the civil rights movement, if enough African Americans have a sensibility that is different from traditional blackness, even if there's crossover and, you know, there's the Venn diagram and I'm not suggesting that they're all completely different. There's there's shading. But if, they're, if there are enough and are different that there is a recognizable school of blackness, then that school needs a name. Uh, early on, when I was first thinking about it and writing about it, the term was New Black Aesthetic, from an essay that Trey Ellis wrote back in 1986. And Nelson George was using the Post-Soul Aesthetic. And what I liked about the Post-Soul Aesthetic as a name was that the term and the concept of soul, as in soul train and soul music and soul food, was sort of fit in the 70s and the 60s. And Post-Soul allowed there to be a sense that, okay, it's the 1980s now, it's the 1990s now, and we're in an era Deeply inside blackness, but in an era that is both a certain time period. It just didn't catch on. And what caught on was a 1999 introduction to um, a freestyle, a a museum exhibition called Freestyle by Thelma Goldens and Glenn Leibold, where they used to turn folks black. And they were being facetious. But well, what they were talking about is this idea that someone could be steeped in blackness, but not defined by blackness, that that they, they felt comfortable trafficking in and using and playing with concepts that weren't immediately traditionally black, but demanded that they have the freedom to use these concepts and these ways of making art and these subject matter in terms of film and what have you and in novels and in music and retain their Blackness, but also understand that they're not chained by a sense that they have to do what all Black people are doing or else somehow they're not Black. And so this term, post-Black, was to point, to describe this growing group of black artists who were making art that wasn't traditional in the same way that artists in the 60s and 70s wanted to be.
0: Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status and before I had a pager, you can find the abstract. Listening to hip hop, my pops used to say it reminded him of bebop. I said, Well, Daddy, don't you know that things go in cycles? Way the Bobby Brown is just. When Tiger
2: Woods first popped on the scene, you're over the freedom when Tiger Woods popped on the scene. right. And you started getting introduced to this, this weird tablamation. He, he did not want to be, he did not acknowledge that he was black. He didn't acknowledge that he was high. He didn't acknowledge that he was white. He wanted to be seen and heard of as a Teppelin agent. And pretty much got away with Early in the clear, if I had asked a question 20 years earlier, there would have been a yes he's black or no he's not. Because the one drop rule, which is on the run right now, is simply something that doesn't Hold the same sort of cultural dominance that it used to have. The, the growth of the term mixed race or biracial as a category into the kind of umbrella post-race reality that we're in right now.
0: Only if you are noted as my man, and if I get the credit, then i think I deserve it. If you fake news, don't fix your mouth to word it. it
2: When Trayvon Martin was brutally murdered, the dude that did it, he was even Latino, and he passed. And so what we had been was an entire country reacting as if the white guy who gunned him down wasn't a white guy who gunned him down. Because the reality is, it's not quite what it was in terms of a kind of way that we could see the race. Now, is it still polarized? Absolutely. Do millions of people, black, white, and others, conceive of race in a kind of binary sort of way? Yes, they do. And yet, some of those folks are perfectly willing to look at folks like Tiger Woods and see them as the complicated, multifaceted individuals that they are, even if they want to say they're black. This woman who's marrying into the royal family, she is simply not seen as a black woman, even though her mother is unquestionably black in a way that no one would think any other thing about her. And there's so many kids and so many people who are inhabiting a kind of racial gray and being allowed on some level. To inhabit that racial gray, that we have indeed inhabited a sort of post-race era, even though it doesn't mean that there's no race, it doesn't mean that there's no racism, it doesn't mean that there's no racial problems, it doesn't mean that there's no white supremacy. none of that stuff is gone. And nobody's saying that stuff is gone. And the people who use the term post-race aren't saying that stuff is gone the people who misuse the term because they think that some means after are going to then scoff at the term because they think they know what it means and they don't really.
1: I think a part of it is, again, there's sort of a tacit, and I hate to use the word allowance because to me that says there's somebody with a particular level of power sort of giving you permission to be coblasian or whatever tiger or Vin or The Rock Once, Actually, I take that back. The Rock has never shied away from saying, my dad is black. He's never shied away. I don't, know, I don't know Vin Diesel's history, so I can't talk about that. I think, and that I think, I'm convinced that this sort of allowance of the multiplicity of ethnic identities, if you will, is a reaction to the demographic reality of 2050, when white will no longer be the majority in this country. And if white is no longer the majority of the country, if we go by the rules that they established, for the most part, white folks established the one drop rule. And if we start going back and saying, we're going to call you out on the very thing that you established, then come 2050, most of the people in this country are going to have closer to one drop of black blood. So then if we start for the next 32 years, trying to sort of tacitly, No, 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 I want to be mixed. I want to be all these other things. When we get to 2050 and the census rolls out and then people are making decisions in government based on demographics, who are black? Who are the black people? No, I want to go back to this one drop thing. You created it. At some point, you did it because it was beneficial for you. Now, from 2018 to 2050, it's beneficial for me. And it's beneficial in some sense for our people. So I'm like, F you. No, you did it. Let the chickens come home to roost now. And give me mine. Because if everything is based on demography and monies to counties, to municipalities, to states, to cities, they're based on that. And the demography says, based on if we'd taken it back to the one drop rule, then we would be getting something. And so if we start delineating, no, he's half this, he's half that, he's a third this, he's third that, I think it's going to be difficult to say we're going to be giving this money to this population. I really think it's really that basic. I, I mean, well, I think everything he, at the end of the day it comes down to money. So well, that's, I that's, think that's a major part of it.
2: But here's the, here's the thing, though. What we have to remember is before the influx of immigrants in the late 19th century, In early 20th century, whiteness was a more or less static thing. It was white Anglo-Saxon pop. When the Irish got here, they were not considered white. When the Italians got here, they were not considered white. And what whites in power figured out was it's to their advantage for many of the same demographic reasons that you were talking about to decide to have certain ethnic groups that initially were not considered white to be considered white. It didn't surprise me at all for the very demographic reasons that you're talking about that as that date gets closer to seeming like whites are no longer a majority that Hispanic whites are going to lose the Hispanic and just exactly. be same. Exactly, exactly. It wouldn't surprise me too terribly much, particularly given how they're doing in school and in terms of achievement. It wouldn't shock me if, if somehow um, Asian were somehow and it, it, you know backflip, fifty um you know, flop doodle, and all of a sudden Asians the one. And in other words. Because whiteness was never a, a, a category that couldn't be expanded to political ends we've seen it before. I see no reason to believe that if it looks like whites are going to be a minority, well, they just change the definition of white, and then all of a sudden they're not a minority. If I happen to live long enough, I won't be surprised to see it happen. We're on so
0: tight, together
2: they're beginning to change rules and all this business about how uh, votes are being stolen and you have to carry an ID. This is all a way to suppress voter turnout so that whites can continue to have the majority of the political sway in this country. They're doing it right now. They're not even hiding it. It's, they're doing it right in front of it in the plain light of day. So I personally don't put too much stock in the state certain where whites are supposed to be some demographic minority. And all, really all you have to do is look at, at South Africa. Whites are even close to being a demographic majority there. You know, we got the same white folks here. Every day
1: yeah, man. Speaking of South Africa, this is a bit of an aside, but I think people need to—not need to—not need to—but I think folks should look into a gentleman in South Africa. I love—I it. think it's, it's Joseph Malema, and he is calling out. South African politics and policy for what it is. He's a young man, I think he's in mid-40s. Mid he was part of the ANC, and he sort of branched out because he was probably too radical for them. But even at Winnie Mandela's state funeral a week or two ago, he's up there on the dais, and he's talking. He's got his platform for 20 minutes, and he is looking at, at what he called hypocrites in the ANC, who did not give Winnie her due when she was alive. They sort of pushed her out. They pushed her out. And it just Mm. boggled my mind that he had the brazenness. But also, he has the confidence and he has the wherewithal and he has the truth behind him to call these folks out. One of his biggest platforms is the idea that economic apartheid never left South Africa. That whites still Mm. own 80% of the land in the country. And Mm -hmm. he's talking about black folks getting the land back. And obviously... The minute you say that, most people start thinking that we're going to go there, we're going to kill people, and we're going to steal. them. no, no, no. He starts making a case. We're stayed on farms just like there are in other countries mm. and having blacks coming in. And obviously, if you're freaking 90% of the or 80% of the population plus, I mean, we've got to start getting you into positions where you can rise up, learn the trade, learn the business. And those things never happen. Yeah. Those things are supposed to happen. Yeah. They never happen. What's yeah. funny, though, about it, I wish people can go on YouTube, and look up this gentleman's name, last name Malema, in South Africa. What is funny is that he is Trump in terms of this idea of a populist leader who is taking the voice of the so-called people. And in this case, it's flipped because it's so interesting to me that he's taking the voice of the the demographic majority in South Africa, but in terms of Ideas in terms of people who actually have so called power in this country, they're the, in South Africa, they're the minority over there. The same way Trump's uh, fame and his political clout is with the so called powerless minority in the Rust Belt in middle America whose voice is not being heard is the most interesting dichotomy. Here you have this bombastic asshole here, and you have for mm-hmm. me this populist leader who is saying everything for effect. I mean, I'm smart enough to know that. He's saying it for effect over there, but there's a certain right. truth behind it. But he's black. He's yeah. black, right. and nobody's paying attention to him down there. So this idea of this, this post-racial, post-civil rights era blackness, post-soul aesthetic, to me it's this man. I've never seen anybody like that. I mean, we always say, imagine if Obama said the shit that Trump says right now. Mm. And you have that guy in South Africa right now, and nobody's paying attention to him.
0: I enjoyed my evening. Uh, talking to Dr. Bertram Ash, and I appreciate him giving me his time and thoughts. Um, But this is just part one, man. We talked for about three hours, so there's a part two to this. In part two, we expand the idea of post-blackness, or what he terms the post-soul aesthetic. We talk about traditional black culture versus uh, what it looks like today. What does the post-black look like on TV? I mean, what are the differences between, for example, The Cosby Show and atlanta and insecure the last og we talk about the protest era we are indeed in a protest era almost reminiscent of the 1960s every weekend someplace in this country there are thousands of people marching against something so what does that mean and what does that presage we talk about Jimi hendrix black fanboys or afro-punk basically blackness on the outer rims on the outer edges that seems to be again so different from that traditional how did that come to be and what does that mean and like I promised anybody I talked to this break, I'm gonna bring up Black Panther because it's such a worldwide phenomenon and it's such a, a watershed, a sea change, really, I think, in the culture. So we talk about the last act specifically of Black Panther. So here's the thing. Maybe I'm foolish, maybe I'm blind, thinking I can see through this and see Doctor Ash, who by the way, he's not my family. Some people may have may have thought that I'm looking up for family, but In truth, I think I see somebody I could have been, man, had I gone down that PhD track. I think I've got the ideas, I just don't have the degree. So it was like talking to a kindred spirit, in a sense. Thank you for listening to this episode. I know you'll be back, but for now, we are out. you after all? you're only human, after all, don't put the blame on me. Put your blame on me (laughs) Some people got the real problems Some people out of love my opinion don't ask me to lie and beg for forgiveness for making
1: you cry